You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, I'm Dean. It's good to be together this morning. We are in, according to my notes, week 40 in the book of Acts. And next week, week 41 is our final week. We'll be landing the plane. I started in chapter 1, verse 1 back in January and worked through the entire book. So next Sunday, Sunday after Thanksgiving, will be our last week of the book of Acts. And the week after that, December 3rd, we, again, we will not be here that morning, Sunday, December 3rd. We'll be at the moon at 3, 5, and 7 for Christmas on the moon. I hope you're looking forward to that, bringing friends, making a party to be there. I'm thankful for the chance to take the gospel, the good news, and the context of the Christmas story uh, to that important place in our city where a lot of people gather uh, to proclaim Jesus. So we are good news people. Uh, we bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and broken world. And the reality is we do live in a broken world. So as we are gospel good news people, we also live in a world of a lot of bad news. And uh, one of our City Church kids, Wesley Gaskins, nine years old, uh, passed away last night. And uh, we've been praying for him and his family. Uh, he has battled cancer. Um, and I got a call at 5 a.m. Uh, from his dad, Brandon, uh, and I had a chance to talk to him a little bit later uh, about uh, just what's going on, and we're just standing with them as a church. We're going to grieve with them. Uh, there's when these kind of just horrible things take place, there's not a cliche or any kind of thing to say outside of just walking with people and believing that uh, God is sovereign and believing not the explanations. We don't always have them, but believing God's promises. And God's promises are that heaven's a real place where real people go, and we're going to cling to that. So our hope right now for their family is they will know that God is near and that God will be near to him. We don't have the why, but we do have the who, and we're going to keep pointing them to the Lord uh, during this time. So please be praying for Brandon and Virginia, both sets of grandparents, the Glasses and the Gaskins, aunts and uncles. We have so many cousins, like so many people that are part of this church family. Uh, the CCS school family just affects a lot of people. Uh, so I would just ask that uh, you be in prayer. I'm going to pray now, and then we'll uh, go into Acts uh, today. Actually, actually, an appropriate text uh, for us just to see God's hand and God's sovereignty and the need to trust him even when it doesn't always makes sense. So again, we're, we're grieving today. It's been a sad morning here at our church, um, and, but we do not grieve as those without hope. Uh, so that's uh, what we're clinging to today, is that God is who he says he is, and that he really is with us. So let's pray. Our Father, we, in times where there really are just no words, I'm thankful we have you. So I ask that through this who knows how long process of probably a lifelong process of grieving that the Gaskins, the Brandon, Virginia, and the entire family will know that you are near, that they will feel that you are near because you are near. And we're thankful that Wesley's with you right now. We know that according to your word. We don't grieve as those without hope, but we do grieve. And since Jesus wept, we know that's appropriate for us too as well. So I just ask you to be with this family. Lord, and that they will have people come around them as the time allows in terms of their readiness and uh, that people will not really feel the pressure to say the right thing, but just to be there. Because we know ultimately you were there. So we're thankful for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a time of such bad news. And we ask that the resurrection of Jesus will be what spurs us forward and that all those that are connected, all those who have relationships, especially the family, the grandparents, mom and dad, sister, Lord, I just ask that that they know that you've never left them for a second, that you never left Wesley for a second, and that he's with you right now. So we lift this up to you. I ask you to speak through me this morning, keep the enemy out of this place. Be with all the brothers and sisters in our community as we gather all of our town today. Uh, let us be faithful to who Jesus is. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Uh, so here we are in the book of Acts, 
And the main theme as we're winding down, again, only one more week after this, has been resurrection life. That since Jesus rose from the grave, we are now a resurrection people, and now we as ones who have received our own spiritual resurrection, we follow Jesus. Also, we see the advance of the church to the world, not as a conquest or as a crusade, but as bearers of good news, taking the truth of the gospel uh, to all those who will hear it. So we see resurrection life, we see the advance of the church to the world, and also the mission of taking the good news to the Gentiles, that it's not just for Jews, it's for all people who will hear and believe. And this is going to sound strange for a second, but it's important to me that you grasp this, that the main theme in Acts, we just don't see it talked about very often, the main theme is not the emphasis on God's love. I know it sounds strange, because God is love, so that therefore it permeates all the book of Acts. Anytime we see someone come to faith in Christ, like it's because of God's love that he sent Jesus. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. So those who believe in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that's how we understand God's love. But the main focus, again, God's love permeates everywhere. But the main focus over and over again in Acts, as we've been going through it for almost a year, is resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That this is the truth that the apostles, that Paul is pointing to over and over again. That this is the very thing he wants everyone to know and understand. And because there is a resurrection, it means following Jesus really is worth our lives. Because there is a resurrection, it means even though we don't have all the explanations, we do have that promise that Jesus' resurrection ensures ours. So we see the resurrection Easter Sunday being held up over and over again because you can't kind of sort of rise from the grave. Either you resurrect or you don't. And if it did, he did, it means he actually is Lord and that he actually is worthy of our trust and our hope. And we see throughout this book for 28 chapters that nothing can hinder the unfolding plan of God that every single thing is going to work out according to God's will. That he is sovereign and Lord and ruler and authority over all things. That everything, everyone is subject underneath his feet, even if we realize it or not. So what's happening here is Paul has been taken captive, he's been imprisoned, and those who have imprisoned him, the centurions, a part of it, working for the Roman government, they want to get across the water, get across the sea, to go prepare for the winter in a new place. And they're bringing Paul with him for, because he's a prisoner, and the storm is coming, and the storm's gotten really bad. There's waves, there's the, the sea is roaring and raging. Uh, so common sense, we're from Florida. We know about storms, is don't take the boat out when there's hurricane-like storm coming. I'm just going to trust y'all with that information. I'm indoors, I've never been in a boat, uh, but um, not sure, maybe once. Uh, but we, you know those, those memes out there, the Florida man who holds the American flag out in the street while the storm's coming, right? Like in Florida, we're like, ah, storm, no big deal. We're not evacuating. We're staying here. You know, we'll be fine. It's just like this Florida thing that we have. There's a serious storm coming here. And even if you're like over crazy brave person during a storm, you at least know you shouldn't take a boat out in this crazy weather. So they want to go. And Paul's saying, hey guys, probably not a good idea. Like you had me in prison because of what I believe to be true about Jesus. Like you know I'm a messenger from God. And I'm saying this whole idea of going out in the water in this storm is not a good idea. So what happens, verse 9 of chapter 27. But now much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous. As this is a really bad idea. Since the day of atonement was already over, Paul gave his advice. And told them, men, I can see this voyage is headed towards disaster and heavy loss. Not only of the cargo, yeah, we'll lose our stuff, and we're gonna lose the ship, but also our lives. This is a death sentence. 
to go out in this water in this boat. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and owner of the ship rather than to what Paul, what Paul said. Verse 12, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. So you're out of the gate. Rather than listening to God's messenger in this point, he's listening to the wisdom of man. And I think, how often do I do that? Well, I can have a clear warning from someone who can be trusted, and I rebel against it instead and want to do what's easiest, most convenient, by easy and convenient, to get out of here, to get over there, rather than actually taking a deep breath, having some wisdom, and seeing what is best in the circumstance. But we see in this story that over and over, the plans of man throughout the book of Acts try to stop the church from going forward with the good news of Jesus. And now, full speed ahead, here comes the power of nature. So we have the rulers and the kings trying to stop the gospel from going forward through persecution, through imprisonment, and now here comes the waves and the wind and the storms, full throttle, trying to stop Paul from getting to Rome, even though these people don't realize they're taking Paul to Rome to eventually preach the good news. They think they're taking him to jail. Here we see nature coming full speed ahead. Patrick Schreiner, who had a great commentary on Acts, has been very helpful for me. He wrote this, that in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, plunging into the waters, when you see that take place, is figurative for going to one's death. It's a visible portrait of that invisible reality of descending to the dead. Being saved out of the waves is a visible portrait of resurrection in Christ. So here in this story, we see the reality of death taking place, if they were going to be saved from it, it would point them to Jesus who actually takes us out of the storms. So we see this in verse 20. Finally, in their start of their voyage, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Dire straits. Things are horrible. We're about to taste death, and we even could have avoided it by not getting in the boat and just waiting till later. All hope was fading that we would be saved. Hope was lost. Dire straits are in effect. So what does Paul say? They're already out there. So Paul says, hey, let's keep going. Others want to jump ship. They want to maybe just take their life into their own hands, just die on their own and just go into the water. Or maybe grab onto cargo and hope somebody finds them. Or they float to shore. But Paul said, let's keep going. Let's be courageous here. And they're going, you are the one who told us not to get in the boat in the first place. And now you're the, oh, let's be courageous guy? Why would Paul say that? He's about to tell them, God told me it was going to be okay. God told me it was going to be okay. I have God's word, and God is to be trusted. It's easy to say, or it's important to say, I should say, that Paul serves as a new Jonah. Unlike Jonah, who God told to go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, no, I don't want to go to these people. I don't want to take them the good news. I despise those people. And God punished him and got his attention by throwing him overseas into the water from a boat into the storm. Unlike Jonah, Paul does not run from God's command and call to set towards Rome. But he follows God's plan to a foreign nation to preach the good news a reverse Jonah kind of story here. But here's what Paul is referring to in verse 22. Now I urge you to take courage. This is the middle of the storm where guys want to jump overseas. I urge you to take courage. They're like, dude, look around. Sea, waves, storm. What's courage going to do right now? 
And he says this, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. Yeah, you might lose your stuff, but you're not going to lose your life. How in the world do you know that? Verse 23, for last night, an angel of the God, don't miss these words, I belong to. When we are Christians and submit to the Lordship of Christ, we do not just believe in God, we belong to God. He has ownership over us, authority over us. We are subject to him. He is our master. He is the God that I belong to, and not just belong to, I serve. Because of who he is and how good he's been to me, I now serve him with my life. He stood by me. So God sent a messenger, an angel, to me, As in, I have a clear word, not a speculation, a clear word from God. And what did that angel say? What did he say? Don't be afraid, Paul. Don't be afraid. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. Do we see that God's even orchestrating his imprisonment and his trip and his associations and his hardships to get him in front of Caesar to preach the resurrection of the dead understood in the death, resurrection, ascension and second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, and indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you, as in you had this audience as well. But here's these unbelieving people in the boat with you that God has positioned you in front of them to proclaim hope and courage because God really actually is in control. And that's not a Christian cliche. It is theology 101 that God is sovereign and over in control all things. He's graciously given you these people to hear the good news. So take courage, men. And this line, because I believe God. Notice it's not just I believe in God. It's not just I'm a theist instead of an atheist. I actually believe God. Not just that he exists. I actually believe and receive his word. I trust him, whatever it is that he has to clearly say, I believe God will be just the way it was told to me. Now, how could he claim this in such dire circumstances? Because he knows that God always keeps his word. God always, every single time, keeps his promises. And New Testament scholars will will agree that this story breaks down into three points, or three main settings. The first is setting sail from Caesarea, so they're going off into this trip, Then the second thing is a storm that pushes them westward, pushes the ship off its line. And Paul is going to tell them to stay on the boat while these guys actually want to jump ship, no pun intended, and save themselves. And the warning here is the means that God uses to bring about their saving. So there is some human responsibility here, and that I told you I have a word from God for you, that he's going to protect you, that you're going to be saved, that you're not going to die. So stay in the ship. If you jump out of the ship and go on your own and try to save yourself, you're rejecting God's word, and you can't save yourself. You're dependent upon him. So stay in the boat. That warning is what God uses to bring about their saving. We see human responsibility and divine sovereignty working together, with God being the only one who actually can save. And the third thing is the shipwreck happens, and the crew then will see swims ashore to the island of Malta. So they set out, they face a storm, and then they are saved. And they're going to begin to grasp 
that Paul just doesn't serve one God among many options. He serves the God who is Lord over the waters, over the waves, and over the storms. And that's every Christian story. Every single Christian has clear promises from God. It might not come from an angel, but it doesn't, God can do whatever he wants, but it doesn't need to because now we have a written, completed word. So I believe causes people to regularly have a faith crisis when it comes to God's promises. And I think it's human nature to do so. I'm not judging anybody. But how easy is it in kind of our hyper quotes and uh, Instagram culture where there's always just a lot of power quotes and out of context Bible verses. You know, of course, with you standing on a beach with it being beautiful behind you and you're like, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And it's like biking on 38. Okay, great. Congratulations. But it's so easy to ascribe promises to God that he never actually made. It's so easy, I'm not judging anybody for it because it's such human nature, to ascribe promises to God that he never made. So all of a sudden when life didn't turn out like you thought it would, you're mad at God and blame God for those things when he never actually told you you would have that job, that marriage, that internship, those financial resources. He never promised you any of those things. But what has he promised you? Oh, he's promised us all so much. And we gotta return to those promises over and over again because they're so easy to forget. It's exhaustive, the promises of God. But they're things like the fact that he has saved us and forgiven us. He has saved us from our sins. He has forgiven you of your transgressions. He has declared you to be someone who is righteous even though you lived a life that was unrighteous. So that promise means you don't have to strive to be forgiven. You don't have to go to bed at night wondering if you've been good enough today in order to be saved. Instead, you look to the promises of God where salvation comes through Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed for you so you wouldn't have to shed yours for your sin. You're saved and forgiven. Another promise God gives us is that he's always with us. Always. He never leaves us. When things are going amazing for you, he's there. In the mundane of life, he's there. When you've hit the bottom, he's there. And this is really important. When you don't feel it, he's still there. When you don't feel that he's there, he's still there. He also promises us that our standing with him is secure. It's said regularly that if you could lose your salvation, you would have by now. But God holds on to it. He who began a good work in us, here's a promise, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in us, who started our salvation, we're told will be faithful to complete it in Christ. And because Jesus was faithful and because he died and he rose again, the salvation that begins in us, God will sustain it and carry it through the finish line until we're with him forever in heaven. Please do not assign promises to God that he has not made. Well, how can you know if you're doing that? Well, one, if it's very individualized. Yes, he was speaking, again, a Bible's not been written yet at this time. The New Testament hasn't been completed. But he's speaking about a certain circumstance directly to Paul through the angel in this moment. But what's important to know is that you shouldn't have to change your Christian message if you preach in a third world country tomorrow. Yeah, you might change the illustrations, you might kind of contextualize and use different examples of their surrounding area and help them to understand, but the same gospel that's true here is the same gospel that's true in North Korea or a brush some, or bush somewhere out in Africa. If you have to alter the message, it might not be a word from God. It's for all people 
in all places at all time. The second thing is, as my FCA leader, Karen Knox, used to tell me regularly, she used to say, don't take it just because I said it. Look it up. I'm just a person, she would say. Yeah, I'm an influence in your life. Yeah, God's using me, but if it's not in the Bible, it's not a guaranteed word from the Lord. Can God speak to different people in different ways? Of course he can. I do not have the guts to tell God what he can and can't do. I'm bold. I ain't that bold. But how do we know for certain we have a word from God? Because we can read it in the word and promise us he has given us called our Bibles. That's how you can know for sure you have a word from God. Most cults start because somebody says, God told me this. You want to be in a toxic dating relationship? Have your boyfriend be like, here's what God told me. It's like, whoa, Skippy, we're done. You just got to be careful with those kind of things. You got to be careful. We also have clear warnings in Scripture. Promises in the context of a warning. That we should flee sexual immorality. That we should not worship false gods. That we shouldn't build our house on the, on the sand. We'd rather build it on the rocks, the foundation of Christ. We have warnings over and over again. We're told that if we build our house on the sand, the prom, there's the warning. The promise is that when the waves come, unlike Paul here, when the waves come, everything's going to crash down. But if we build our house on the rocks, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ, is going to be able to withstand the storm and save us. So we get to verse 33. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food. Again, big storm happening. They're not thinking about food at the moment. Saying, today is the 14th day. You've been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So they're clearly not Baptists, in other words. So I urge you, to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. Here in this hurricane-like storm, they're being told that not one hair will be removed from their head. So go ahead and have a snack, because you can rest in God's promises. How do we know we're resting the promises of God? When you can have a snack. When you can have a snack and take a deep breath in the Lord. After he said these things, he had taken some bread. Some commentators believe in my research that this is Paul kind of symbolizing the Lord's Supper where Jesus took the bread and the wine and invited people to his table, that Paul is doing this in front of them and inviting them to the table of the Lord in becoming believers. I'm not sure, but I think that's, there's something there for that. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, like Jesus would break the bread, he began to eat. So we see in verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land. Again, they'd gone off track, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that held the rudders, then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The boat jammed fast and remained immovable, while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. These guys aren't going to get away. We have them imprisoned. But the centurion, again, the assigned official by the government to watch over the prisoners, kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. Do you think that's a coincidence? That here Paul is imprisoned, 
God has orchestrated a storm that left them, the text says, fading in their hope. Paul says, I have a word from the Lord. We're going to be okay. An angel came to me and said that we can keep going and be courageous. Not one hair is going to be removed from our head. And now the centurion is starting to believe God's messenger and has changed his tune altogether. And rather than killing the prisoners, as was suggested, they're about to keep going towards Rome, where Paul's going to stand before the Roman officials, the most powerful place in the world at that time, and declare the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, as a prisoner. Coincidence? I don't think so. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on plank, some on debris from the ship. In this way, just as was promised, everyone safely reached the shore. Here is the truth of our Christian lives based on the promise of God, not the opinion of a preacher. Every single Christian will one day and ultimately safely reach the shore. In a broken world, it may be awful sometimes on the way. Maybe unexplainable sometimes out in the sea. But since God told us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, your sickness, your past mistakes, your wavering, your divorce, your guilt, your shame, your maybe religious trauma from when you were a kid and things were forced down your throat from a strict environment, whatever it could have been. Maybe it's not trauma. Maybe it's just difficulty or turn off or whatever it could be. None of those things, none of those things can keep you from arriving safely at the shore called heaven, which is a real place where real people go. Even those who left this earth way too soon have still arrived in Christ safely at the shore. If all this is true, which I believe it is because of the promises of God, it means that following Jesus is worth it. It should be worth it for us based on simply who he is. He really is the son of God. But if that's not enough for us, here's what he does for his people. He brings us safely to the shore. What is the application? Will you trust him? I mean, will you trust him with your life? Will you refuse to ascribe promises to him that only make sense in an affluent Western culture? Rather than clinging on to the good promises he has given us in himself, that we are with him always, that no one can take us out of his hands? that we are no longer condemned because Jesus was condemned in front of us. We're not believing God when we still condemn ourselves. We're not believing his promises. We're not believing God's promises when we still walk around constantly in shame when God has delivered us from those things. We're not believing God's promises when we think the easiest situation for me is whatever's the easiest situation. Let me just get out of this, end this, move on from that, rather than being faithful and seeing it through or holding yourself prisoner for bad decisions you've made in the past that Jesus came to die for and liberate you from. In this way, everyone safely reached the shore.
Yes, that actually was a real historic event that happened, but don't miss the spiritual metaphor that God takes his people safely to the shore just as he has promised. And then we get on chapter 28, verse 14. They arrive at at an island called Malta. They're they're shown hospitality there. Uh, It allows Paul to kind of keep going and kind of get some rest and go. And what do we see in verse 14? Uh, It's just these six words are so powerful to me. And so, this is Luke writing, and so we came to Rome. That's just not a travel detail. That's not just a next step. That's not taking Instagram and going, next stop, boom. Over throughout Acts, especially the past few chapters, we kept seeing that Paul was supposed to go to Rome. That God had in his will and his foreknowledge and in his plan to move the church and the good news forward for Paul to go to Rome, the most powerful and influential city in that place at that time. And now all of a sudden, even though there was a storm and a shipwreck and imprisonment and persecution and beatings, we came to Rome. We came to Rome. In other words, it was just exactly, not just as as God had planned, that's not enough, as God had orchestrated. If you're going to err, I don't think you can err in this area, but if you're gonna err theologically, please err on too large of a view of the sovereignty of God. Too large of a view of the sovereignty of God. I don't mean you're a fatalist where you fall down the stairs and you're like, God, thank you, that's over. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But actually believing he's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over your salvation. He's sovereign over the affairs of your life. He knows the number of your days. And we have to, to, by grace, and reminding ourselves and returning to the scriptures to almost discipline, probably the word, ourselves to have an eternal perspective. It's hard to do that when you're just going 100 miles an hour in life. I, I get that. It's hard to think about it. And what we've done is we've kind of romanticized heaven, where it's kind of a preschool story, or it's just kind of some clouds and angels with harps sort of in the sky, and it, it's just kind of, we talk about it when somebody dies or, or something like What allowed this to go forward was their absolute conviction in the resurrection of the dead. Meaning that one day all who know Jesus will rise because Jesus purchased their life from the dead by dying himself and resurrecting. So we had to, again, I know it's one of those things where you're running 100 miles an hour and I got to pick up, who's going to pick up the kid from soccer and then she's at softball and she's at dance and he's at tutoring and we haven't even had dinner yet, and it's Sunday, and Chick-fil-A is closed. We don't have no idea what we're going to do. You know, like, like, it's just, there's just so much going on that it's hard to think about the future. And Jesus even says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry of itself. He's not talking about heaven. He's saying because you believe in the resurrection of the dead and believe in heaven, that it's a real place where real people go, and we will be brought safely to the shore, that now you can focus on the things of eternity while being faithful to what God's called you to through your family, your work, your responsibilities, your relationships here on earth. We're told that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I know it's easy to go, okay, hey man, I believe the Bible, like I'm a Christian, like I like going to church, but 
it's not, can you really tell someone that's experienced this or experienced that, that God's working all things together for their good? Because we're sure as heck not seeing it. And I always want to be sympathetic to that. Well, we've got to read the Bible in context. Context is key. Context, you could say, is king in Bible reading. The next verse says, Those he foreknew, he predestined, against sovereignty of God over all things, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So what God thinks is the best thing for us is for us to be more like Jesus. That's what's for our good. And you go, well, I still don't, that still doesn't explain this or that, okay? The next verse, he talks about what people call the golden chain of salvation. That he calls us to himself. The ones we see, he uses four words. He talks about being predestined, being called, being justified, and being glorified. So predestined that God, there's mystery to it, that God foreknew in his sovereignty. If he's sovereign over all things, why wouldn't he know that? It's really very Bible. Um, the implications of it, are confu- or it can be a mystery, but the fact that it exists is a Bible word. Uh, called, he calls people to himself. He draw, that's why we pray for people's salvation. That's why we pray for God to save people, because he calls people. He draws them to himself in his sovereignty. And then the next thing says that he justifies us. He declares us not guilty. He makes us right. He gives us righteousness. And then the next thing after that, it says, then those he you know, called and predestined and predestined, called and justified, that one day he'll glorify. And that's talking about our resurrected state. So God's working all things together for our good, for those who love him, and have been called according to his purpose. Verse 28 sounds like a coffee mug at first and too good to be true and not realistic. The next verse we're told that the working things together for our good what he sees as our good is to make us more like Christ. And how that ultimately is realized is in the truth that one day the ones who are predestined and called and justified will arrive safely on the shore in our glorification. So what does verse 31 say? If God's for us, who can be against us? And that for us is based on his promises for his people to never leave us nor forsake us and finish the good work he's completed in us. Do you see why the gospel is called good news? Let's be people who believe in the sovereignty of God because as chapter 8 goes on, nothing can keep us from his love. Nothing. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for promises. For promises. And that the explanations really are resolved in the resurrection of Christ, that he is our reason. He is the point. So Lord, let us see people who trust in what you have already told us and believe that's enough for our faith, enough for our lives. And that we will rejoice in the reality that our God has spoken to us through the scriptures, that we have the Holy Spirit to allow us to see and understand and grasp and comprehend. But there are great mysteries to the faith. But one, one thing that's not a mystery is that you keep your word that you are working in a people that you have called the church all around the world, that you have brought to yourself, that you have justified, that one day you will bring safely to the shore. So I ask in the meantime, we will be found faithful. Lord, we lift up those in our church right now who are hurting, who have suffered loss yesterday, a year ago, however long ago it was, those that have anxiety, those that are having marriage strife, those that are overwhelmed in parenting, those that are nervous about tomorrow, Lord, let us look to you.
that the promise we have is not that on this earth everything's going to work out just fine, but that ultimately you will take us safely to the shore. You are sovereign over all things, and you, the one we belong to, really will work out all things together for our good, and we trust you, the God over history, who has given us promises that the resurrected Christ will reign and rule forever. Let us hope and let us trust in that. Let us really believe that all these things are true and that following Christ is worth our lives. For the teenagers in this room, Lord, I ask they will believe that following Jesus is worth their lives. For the college students in this room, Lord, let them believe that to be true, that following Jesus is worth their lives. For the person in the dating scene trying to figure out next steps for their life, Lord, let them see based on their choices that following Jesus is worth it. For the married couple thinking about calling it quits, let them see that following you is worth it. We're thankful for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.